Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 3L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. Today, we are honored to have with us Keith Bybee. Professor Bybee is Vice Dean and Professor at Syracuse University College of Law and also holds a tenured appointment in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. He also directs the Institute for the Study of the Judiciary, Politics, and the Media, a collaborative effort among the College of Law, the Maxwell School, and the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. Among Professor Bybee's areas of research interest are the judicial process, LGBT politics, the politics of race and ethnicity, American politics, constitutional law, and the media. His book titles provide clues as to the content of the discussion we will have today, including Mistaken Identity, the Supreme Court, and the Politics of Minority Representation, Bench Press, the Collision of Courts, Politics, and the Media, All Judges Are Political, Except When They're Not, Acceptable Hypocrisies and the Rule of Law, and How Civility Works. He is currently at work on a grant-funded project examining the positive uses of fake news. Hopefully you all understand why I asked Professor Bybee to join us. Not only was he a fabulous constitutional law to professor for me, but his areas of specialty encompass so much of what we hear and read on a daily basis. Law, politics, media, minority representation, civility, and fake news. It's hard to know where to begin. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with the unbelievable leak from the United States Supreme Court, the draft decision overturning Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Roe v. Wade. What was your first thought when you heard the news? And did you think it might be fake? I did think it might be fake uh, just because a leak like this is truly unprecedented. Uh, So once it was authenticated, I was, and I think I speak for many people, and this is not just for uh, students of the court, but members of the general public, I was stunned. You know, it's not as if the court is a watertight institution. Uh, It does leak. The week before uh, the draft opinion was made public, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial that seems to strongly indicate that some members of the editorial board had inside access uh, to internal information about the court's court's own deliberations. Uh, The editorial board either took an excellent guess that Justice Alito had been assigned uh, the opinion writing task in Dobbs, or had a source. And, and in that editorial, uh, called for um, the members of the majority to stay firm and to not be persuaded by Justice Roberts to sign on to a more minimalist decision. That was just the week before uh, this this uh, release of, a, of the draft opinion. And we have a history. You don't really have to look too far back at all uh, in the reporting, say, by Jan Crawford or Joan Biskupic, or even the books by Jeffrey Tubin, where we've seen journalists provide fairly detailed accounts of what happens inside the court, uh, inside deliberations that are meant to be confidential and secret. So again, it's not as if we don't get any inside information. It's not as if, even though they're sworn to confidentiality, People who work at the court, even justices themselves, don't tell tales out of school. Most famously, maybe, uh, would be the book called The Brethren, which was written by Bob Woodward and 
Scott Armstrong, Bob Woodward of Watergate uh, fame, of uh, uh, not committing the crimes of Watergate, but exposing <laughs> it uh, as an investigative reporter. And after some time after that book was published, which was an expose, really a tell-all about how the court operated, sharing lots of gossip about the personal conflicts between the justices, Woodward ultimately revealed that the main source for that book was Justice Potter Stewart, was sitting on the court at the time. In fact, he had approached Woodward uh, as an admirer of Woodward's uh, work for the Washington Post, his investigative reporting. Justice Stewart had asked Woodward if he might do something similar on the court. Uh, Justice Stewart was strongly opposed to the chief justiceship um, of uh, Warren Berger at the time. And Stewart's hope was that this would, uh, this expose would create such fervor that there would be um, pressure for Chief Justice Berger to resign. Again, a leaky institution. <laughs> so so it's, it's remarkable, stunning even, to have this draft opinion released. But it's not unprecedented, as if this is the first we've heard uh, about how uh, the court operates. But this, to my knowledge, we've never uh, received anything like this. A full draft opinion, formatted uh, the way in which the opinions are formatted, using the official font and authenticated by the court itself uh, and released into the wild before the official opinion is announced. And I, I want to make sure to say that I don't want to have a, poli- a discussion about the politics of abortion, but, but as to the legal process, legally speaking, when you look at that draft and as you say, it's all formatted and all, it, it looks more final than, than draft in terms of just a lay person's eyes. Can you speak to draft decisions and the politics of draft decisions and how they fit into the process? Because from this, essentially, you could just pull out a couple of paragraphs and say you concur with this, but disagree with the rest, Correct. Sure. And over time, I mean, the court has its own internal processes and uh, over time they've, they've shifted somewhat. Uh, something that's been consistent, certainly over the modern era, is that once an opinion is drafted, it circulates among the chambers in the Supreme Court. I think sometimes it can be, as a member of the general public, uh, get a misleading impression of how the court operates because if you're aware of their operation at all, you see them all sitting together on a bench during oral argument days. And you might think that they often work collectively all the time, like they're often meeting in committee and hashing things out. And that's that's not true. It really is, it has been described, in fact, uh, almost as if there's separate, nine separate law firms in the building all doing their own work. And uh, the interaction between them, obviously they're in the same building and, they, and there's a shared cafeteria. There's even a basketball court at the Supreme Court up on the roof, the highest court in the land, they call it. Uh, so there are informal social interactions, to be sure, but there's a formal process of opinion circulation. So uh, once, uh, after the initial conference and the initial disposition of a case, roughly, you know, who the votes are going to be, uh, opinion is assigned, and it's the most senior justice in the majority that gets to make the decision uh, about who will write the opinion, uh, unless the person in the majority is the chief justice, and then they have that authority. So once the opinion is assigned, they start working on it, that justice, and they will circulate a, a draft. And this can happen several times. There can be multiple circulations as people provide their input. 
But there's no requirement that it has to, you know, make, say, 10 laps of the nine justice circuit before we're done. It can vary depending on how closely divided the court is, how contentious the issue is. There was a period of time earlier, still in the modern period of Supreme Court history, where they took more time to pass things around. And some scholars believe that that encouraged unanimity uh, on the court, where even as individual justices retained different views on the merits of the case, different views on how the court's holding ought to be justified, and even maybe different views of what the holding ought to be, that they would suppress those differences at the final stage for the sake of the court speaking with a single voice. Some scholars have argued that a more lengthy process of opinion circulation fostered or encouraged or at least allowed that kind of unanimity to emerge. It's a quicker process today. I think there's more of an expectation that you turn things around more quickly just based on uh, how processes are reported. And so a draft opinion that we see could change. It's not final, but it may be not final in the sense that a footnote needs to be corrected. Right? It could be that what we see when the court issues its final opinion at the end of June in this case, that it looks very close to what we saw in the leaked draft opinion. Or there could be more fundamental changes. In recent memory, probably uh, the biggest change, again, reported as a result of the shoe leather investigative reporting, a kind of leak, if you will, but after the fact, not before the formal decision was decided, concerned uh, the original Obamacare case where the Supreme Court was considering the constitutionality of the individual mandate. Uh, for those of you who are not uh, total healthcare nerds at home, the individual <laughs> mandate was the requirement that uh, you purchase healthcare uh, insurance. And if you don't, um, either do um, uh, you so privately or th- through your employer, then you're required to pay a fee. So uh, the court seemed poised to strike that down uh, as a measure that went beyond Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause to regulate health care in the United States. But in this process of circulating drafts and uh, trading comments, uh, coalitions shifted. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts moved from voting with a majority to strike down the individual mandate as an unconstitutional extension of Congress's power to upholding the individual mandate as a constitutional exercise of Congress's power to tax. That led to a whole reshuffling, and the final opinion looked very different than what you would have seen had uh, a draft opinion been leaked in that case. So there can be, um, you know, from time to time, even now with a more truncated process of sharing opinions, radical shifts in the opinion drafting process. But it can also be the case that, you know, the thing that flies, spews out of the printer first time around can be pretty close to the final case, that's a final decision that's officially released. One extended argument that I've heard following the leak is that that slippery slope effect and, you know, does this mean now that Loving v. Virginia is overturned or Obergefell v. Hodges? And and I saw that Mr. Obergefell recently stated that he fears overturning Casey and Roe could threaten legal protections for, among other things, the landmark case he established, which the same-sex marriage, legalizing same-sex marriage, but you've got the interracial marriage conversation, contraception, the list goes on. Do you see 
those consequences as natural extensions of the conversation, or does that get more to the political side of the discussion? Well, I, I think in this instance, it's very difficult to disaggregate the legal from the political, right? They're bound up with one another. We talk a lot, let me say, I guess at the outset, we tend to be consumed about the leak itself. I mean, that is news, big news. And for a number of people, and still to some extent, even now in the news cycle, that's what people want to talk about is the fact of the leak itself. Uh, who did it? What were their motivations? Has this kind of thing ever happened before? Will we see more leaks like this in the future? But your question shifts gears a little bit and actually asks about the substance of the decision itself. It is, of course, about, uh, about abortion. But the way in which the, the draft opinion is written does arguably have consequences for other implied fundamental rights that the court has recognized over time. So prior to Roe v. Wade being decided, the court had identified a right to privacy being protected in the Constitution. And that right to privacy included a protection of um, sex within marriage. Uh, so you couldn't uh, prohibit the use of contraceptives uh, with a you know, married couple using a, a contraceptives. The court even extended that right to privacy to recognize protections for the use of contraceptives, even for unmarried uh, individuals. After uh, Roe v. Wade, we saw other extensions of this right to privacy to include, as you've uh, already mentioned, the uh, right to same-sex marriage. Uh, before that, uh, recognize that there was a, a right to same-sex sex. Uh, you couldn't criminalize same-sex sex because it was a fundamentally protected right. So a lot of these kind of come together, and doctrinally, uh, they have similar origins. And the way in which the draft opinion was written now deciding that there's no such thing as a right to privacy that is broad enough to include the decision or whether or not to have an abortion, approaching the case that way does raise questions about the foundations of these other rights. So, for example, let's just talk about where do fundamental rights come from, right? Where do you fundamental rights come from? It's a sensitive question. My children asked me, where do babies come from? I said, the hospital. It's the only <laughs> responsible answer there is. So where do implied fundamental rights come from? Well, you can't just read the Constitution and see them, right? They're not explicitly listed. They're implied. They're inferred. Well, what guides or controls or constrains that process of inference? And over time, the court has come up with different answers. The way the court proceeded, say, in that case where they first recognized a right to privacy that protected uh, you know, sexual intimacy within marriage and struck down a law that prohibited the use of contraceptives by married couples— the court articulated a couple of different approaches. In the majority opinion, the court started with the text of the Constitution, but was really very fast and loose with the text, right? They said, you know, given the text itself, there are emanations formed by, or rather penumbras formed by emanations that come out of the text, and you end up with these kinds of zones of privacy around various explicitly listed rights. And those zones of privacy kind of singly or together, the court wasn't entirely clear about this, protect uh, sex within marriage from this governmental regulation. Well, there's another approach that came in a much later case uh, called Washington v. Glucksburg, where the court said the way to identify an implied fundamental right is not to have this very loose set of inferences piled on top of each other. You begin with the constitutional text and who knows where you're going to end up. Instead, 
we look to our own historical tradition and see if rights are deeply rooted within that tradition. That if you look across time in American history, you can actually see instances in laws, in state constitutions, of that specific right being recognized. The implied fundamental right in question in Washington v. Glucksburg was, is there a right to assisted suicide? And the court looked back in a very kind of concrete way and said, concretely, are there laws and constitutional clauses recognizing such a right consistently throughout our history? And they said no. So that's a very different approach, right? You're going to find a lot fewer fundamental rights using that Glucksburg approach than you would using the Griswold approach. That's the marital sex case I was describing earlier. The Dom's draft uses the Glucksburg approach, chooses the Glucksburg approach. And that does raise questions about where does the right to same-sex marriage come from? If we look in our history, do we see that concrete right to same-sex marriage being consistently protected in laws and in constitutions? No, right? Where does a right to same-sex sex come from? So you can see how it, uh, if you uh, take this Glucksburg approach, it does raise questions about some other fundamental rights the court, the court has inferred. So how has the court managed this in the past? Well, even in Glucksburg, Glucksburg did not overturn other cases that identified fundamental rights in different ways. What the court said in Glucksburg is, we don't talk about all fundamental rights the same way. So for this right to assisted suicide, this is the approach we're going to use. But that doesn't mean, Glucksburg um, decided after Roe, we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. What the court is doing in Dobbs, or the draft opinion at least, is extending that Glucksburg rationale to Roe v. Wade. The question then becomes, where does it stop? Do we then next take up, say, the right to same-sex marriage? If we can't demonstrate, as it would be difficult to demonstrate, if we can't demonstrate that the right to same-sex marriage is deeply rooted in our own history and traditions, then there is no implied fundamental right to same-sex marriage. So that's the concern, right? And I think it is reasonable to be concerned that that draft opinion as written does call into question or um, at least raise doubts about these other implied fundamental rights. Now, this is where we kind of politics comes in, right? Well, does it mean necessarily that the next decision, right, the next domino to fall would be Obergefell v. Hodges, uh, the case in which the court recognized this right to same-sex marriage? Well, you, know, you have to, the court makes law, makes constitutional or interprets the constitution one case at a time, right? And they can't go anywhere unless they have a case. Just like, you, you know, you can't, Drive your car unless you have some kind of fuel to power it, right? So where do these cases come from? Uh, these cases have to come from disputes. Uh, there has to be someone out there, maybe a, a state seeking to pass, as they did in advance of the Dobbs decision, laws that give the court an opportunity to issue a ruling. So maybe you imagine the state uh, passing a law banning same-sex marriage. That would create the opportunity for a case to work its way up to the court, which then we would see whether Dobbs would be extended and the right to same-sex marriage no longer be recognized. 
But it doesn't just happen automatically or just by force of deductive logic once a new doctrine is announced. The meaning of a given doctrine becomes evident. Uh, it, the meat is added to the bones in subsequent litigation and in subsequent decision-making. And that's a contingent process. So there's nothing necessary about it, but doctrinally you can see how the ground has shifted. This makes Dobbs a significant, as significant as this draft opinion would be in Dobbs just for abortion itself. It also potentially has tremendous significance for other implied fundamental rights as well. We are speaking with Professor of Law and Vice Dean at Syracuse University College of Law, Keith Bybee. We'll be right back. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we are back now with Keith Bybee, Professor of Law and Vice Dean at Syracuse University College of Law. In one of your books, All Judges Are Political Except When They're Not, you quote a New York Times article from Justice Alito's confirmation process, uh, January 2006, and it memorialized opening remarks that said, good judges are always open to the possibility of changing their minds based on the next brief that they read. And during those same confirmation hearings, you often hear repeatedly, we've got to respect stare decisis. Interestingly enough, in this leaked draft, we read, quote, Casey reaffirmed Rose central holding based solely on the doctrine of stare decisis. But as we will explain, proper application of stare decisis required an assessment of the strength of the grounds on which Roe was based. Is that the definition of stare decisis that we've known or is that changing? Uh, that's a great question, Meg. Uh, and I, I think uh, I think the answer uh, is is yes and no, right? So, uh, stare decisis is a is a flexible doctrine uh, that has built within it its own escape hatch, right? So, it's Latin for "let the decision stand." You're supposed to treat as authoritative and uh, use as a ground for a decision in a current case regarding the controversy before the court used decisions from prior cases. But it's never been a commandment that you're, you know, must apply uh, any prior case and stick with it indefinitely. 
To begin with, there are often multiple prior cases that themselves are in tension with one another. So uh, it's a doctrine that calls for judgment. Even if you're not overturning any past case, you've got to figure out how to interpret prior decisions so they can be reconciled, organized, and used to resolve the controversy in front of the court. But stare decisis itself does not preclude prior cases from being overturned. So you're simultaneously, as a judge in a common law system, you have an obligation to apply past decisions, but uh, you're not precluded from uh, correcting the law, uh, from purifying the law, you might say. So if it becomes clear that a past decision is wrong, you are not somehow acting beyond your authority as a judge to overturn it. You're actually improving the process of common law decision-making by making sure the next time the court makes a decision, it will be working with a set of precedents um, that are accurate, valid, and true. So it's always a doctrine that has allowed for prior decisions to be overturned. You can think of it as a spectrum, though. Uh, are you a person who you would have to have extremely strong reasons presented before you agreed to overturning any prior decision? Or are you a person at the other end of the spectrum where the slightest doubt would say, you know, we need to overturn this prior decision and begin anew? Justice Thomas probably has uh, the longest and clearest record of being somebody who is publicly not too concerned about stare decisis. And recently, in fact, said some fairly disparaging things about it. So people talk about precedent, and I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, when they're too lazy to think for themselves. He, his view, as often showcased in dissents that he'll write, sometimes joined by other justices, sometimes just writing for himself, he will many times return to first principles. So sometimes this means uh, calling into question a case decided 10 years ago. Sometimes it means calling into question a line of cases dating back 150 years. He wants to return to the clause of the Constitution itself, or return to the words of the statute itself, and you know, use, it by his own lights, using uh, the arguments uh, and facts, the arguments of the lawyers and the law and the evidence in front of him, come up with what he thinks is the right approach. Uh, and if this means overturning decades or even centuries of precedent, then so be it. So he is someone who's uh, always been uh, more open to reconsideration and root and branch reconstruction of the law. You know, the reason why we have precedent is, is in part to uh, constrain judges, right? so they are not just uh, rendering decisions that are brand new, a whole cloth. But also there's this notion that there's a wisdom that comes from aggregated decisions, if we have the work of generations that we can use to inform our decision now, then we can profit from the work of many minds as we try to figure out with uh, how to untangle the knotty issue in front of us. That, for people who are doubtful of, of stare decisis, seem less persuaded by that justification. Now, that justification I just offered you is an old conservative justification. Conservative with a, a small c. I don't mean in the sense of our partisan politics today. But that was one of the justifications that was offered by Edmund Burke for not just legal precedent, but for tradition as a whole. That there was a wisdom in the way that things were done. Not because people 50 years ago, 100 years ago were smarter than us, 
No, only because over the generations, 20 generations of people countering similar problems, the solutions and approaches that we have now reflect that collected experience and wisdom. When we hastily disregard uh, a prior case or when we have no principle of stare decisis, we raise questions about the legitimacy of judicial authority, but we're also taking a position about where we think good answers can come from. Is the past you know, some kind of benighted place filled with people that were using the wrong ideas and wrong theories and came up with just totally backwards, incorrect decisions? Or was there built over time, step by step, a way of thinking, a series of doctrines, a series of approaches that reflect some kind of collected wisdom? The court seems perched on a place of where it's getting ready to clean house. It's not getting ready to, it's, it's not continuing to preserve a kind of collected wisdom, but rather it's returning to first principles and articulating the grounds for new doctrines. How would you, through all your years of research in this topic of courts and politics and media, is this all part of just healthy debate and discussion and differing views? Or do you see a path? And I, I say this because we, in the media, that's that's what we are hearing is, oh my gosh, this is all new. This is all. And is it that profound or is this just all part of healthy debate over the course of the last two centuries? Well, I'll tell you, Meg, I'm generally a kind of like, there's nothing new under the sun sort of guy. <laughs> that's my default. That's my go-to. That's my safe space. And I, I generally made that kind of argument when um, some new event emerges and people say the sky is falling or um, we're at some kind of tipping point. In this context, the crisis that people fear is that the court will come to be understood, the Supreme Court in particular, as a wholly political institution, no different from Congress or presidency or, or even just, you know, uh, the, the partisan politics that we have on the local or state level, that there's, you know, the things that counts is who's got the most votes, right? And that there's not impartial principle that's at stake. It's that you got your view and I've got my view and they're incompatible. And uh, if I don't have the, the votes to carry my policy forward and you don't have the votes to carry yours forward, then we'll compromise. But other than that, it's my way of the highway and you'll behave the same <laughs> if you have the upper hand. So I think there's a concern that the court is going to become much more like the other branches of the federal government or just like another political body. The judges, the justices themselves will be nothing more than politicians in robes. And so that is often when people talk about a crisis in uh, our constitutional law uh, or a crisis in the American rule of law, that's what they're talking about. And I've often argued that crisis talk is overblown and that there is an enduring but sustained tension between the you know, political side of the House and the legal side of the House and the Supreme Court. And you can see it in a bunch of different ways. One place you can look, for example, is in public opinion surveys. You can find decades worth of evidence where large majorities of, of Americans who are respondents in these surveys will say that the Supreme Court is the most trusted branch of government. They present uh, the court as having the right amount of power. The American public trusts 
the justices really to be, and sees them as, in many ways, impartial arbiters of law. At the same time, though, these very same uh, opinion surveys show that a large majority of Americans think that the court is too mixed up in politics. And then oftentimes, you can't explain the court's decision simply by pointing to the law, that personal belief and, and even partisan commitment are part of the motivations for the decisions that the justices make. This half-law, half-politics view of the court has persisted for a very long time. And we can find it even going further back. If we go back to a much earlier era where there aren't public opinion surveys, we can see people talking about the Supreme Court or the law in general in the same way. So Oliver Wendell Holmes at the end of the 19th century gave a, a speech at Boston University that was then published as a very famous article called The Path of Law. And in that, he said, hey, you know, um, judges and lawyers, they like to present the laws as if it's a matter of impartial logic and that they're just operating on the basis of syllogistic reasoning where they have a clear principled premise. They apply that to the facts of the case and inexorably, inevitably, almost in a mechanical way, they reach the result through the application impartially of principle to fact. And what Holmes said is don't believe it. That's not how the law actually works. The life of the law has not been logic, it's experience. It's, you know, who is this judge? What did they do before they came on the bench? What were their life experience? What are their beliefs? What's their religion? What's their political commitments, right? All of that stuff is in the mix. And so he said, you know, it's much more humanized that what really drives judicial decision-making is not impartial logic and principle. It is instead this much earthier stuff. It's politics. That's Oliver Wendell Holmes who was a judge you know, for most of his adult life. He lived a long time, and he was on the Supreme Court for a long time. When he wrote his opinions, he used the law, right? I mean, he reasoned on the basis of principle and logic, even though he told us that that wasn't a full explanation for what was going on. So in his own practice, in his own writings, in his own speech and thought represented this half-law, half-politics view of the enterprise. So I'm coming back to your question, Meg. I know it's way in the rearview mirror. <laughs> <No. laughs> Tapping the brakes, turning this car around, heading back <laughs> to your question, right? So is this what's going on now again? Is it is this just seem like, okay, this is just the latest iteration of a sky has fallen concern, but really all we're dealing with is the very same um, half-law, half-politics institution and we're sort of seeing more of one face rather than the other face of it. Well, I don't know. I, I'm starting to come around a little bit to the crisis point of view. And one indicator of that is in public opinion surveys. We now see that uh, trust and confidence in the Supreme Court is cratering. And this is something that's been having or happening over the past year. We're seeing the view that judges, their justices, are motivated principally by politics instead of the law, the percentage of Americans that agree with that is growing. Now, among Democrats and self-identified liberals, it's, you know, it has been growing very rapidly, and there'll be a ceiling effect, right? You can't get over 100% ultimately on these surveys, right? But it's also growing among independents, and it's also growing among Republicans, self-identified conservatives. It's not the same amount of growth in this view, but it is across the board. So we're seeing an increased recognition, uh, and it's always been there, of the court as a political body. 
but it's not paired with what has been historically paired with, which is trust and confidence in the, in the institution, belief that the justices have the right amount of power, that they are impartial arbiters of law. Belief, you know, we can sort of think about you happy when a decision comes out because it agrees with your own preferences. But what's different about the court is we think they not only gave us a win, you or me a win, right? But but they they told us what was right, right? They tell us what's constitutional. That has an added meaning and value above just, you know, six Republicans outvoted the three Democrats, right? But that kind of sense that there's some kind of correctness carried with the decision that distinguishes a decision by the court from a vote in the House of Representatives seems to be wearing thin. And the worry is that it will disappear all together um, and that we will be left with a view of judges truly as politicians in robes, not offset or accompanied by any sense of judges as impartial arbiters of law. I always like to conclude the podcast by asking for any advice that you have for law students. And of course, I'll accept any advice that you have, but I thought I'd also <laughs> narrow it to another area of research that you've in which you've participated, which is how do we stay civil through all of this with each other as law students, as lawyers, as family members and friends? Well, it, you know, the court itself has... Um, Practices and policies it has instituted in an effort to maintain civil relationships between the justices. One is, for example, they, they a handshake. There's a judicial handshake. They do it before they enter conference and they do it before they go onto the bench for oral argument. This handshake is not just like a couple of justices shaking hands. Each justice shakes hands with all the others, right? So each one gets eight shakes in and this was instituted by Chief Justice, I think, Fuller in the late 19th century. And the idea was behind it that it was supposed to underscore the differences in opinion do not preclude a shared sense of purpose. So we can have differences of opinion, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person and you're a good person, right? Or, or the other, other way around. Uh, it's this argument that is different between us. Uh, but we're still two people that may share the common goal, say, in this case, uh, faithful interpretation of the Constitution. Now, there's some indication that's no longer working at the court. <laughs> they don't get along, right? I mean, just to hear the justices talk about Justice Thomas again was saying, you know, this court's not like it used to be. You know, we were more of a family, a dysfunctional family, you know, when Rehnquist was uh, chief justice. But that's gone Way back when, in Chief Justice Marshall's day, they used to actually live together, you know, shared in the same boarding house. They had a lot of interactions, so they got to see each other more in a 360-degree sense as people beyond whatever position a justice happened to have on a particular issue. So the way in which we engage in civil discourse is not that we don't disagree. People sometimes think civility is a matter of us all just getting along and there are no disagreements. It's that we recognize that our disagreements are differences of opinion, and those differences of opinion can be hugely significant. But that doesn't mean that people that are on opposite sides of an issue do not share a similar positive goal. So if you can try to see that uh, in arguments you have, not only with professional colleagues, uh, but with friends, and, and the hardest thing is family, Meg. Of course, <laughs> it's toughest. To see with family. See that, you know, 
if you have some things in common, even as you strongly disagree, then it doesn't mean that you will arrive at a decision where everybody thinks like, oh, okay, we can now 100% get behind what we're going to do. You, those disagreements may be lasting, but they'll have a different quality. They will not preclude further engagement and the possibility of agreement on other issues. If we end up with a six-member block on the court, or possibly five-member, depending where Chief Justice Roberts lands, that simply votes as a block on every issue, and, and I don't see this happening, but if that were to happen, it would be a tremendous loss. And I mean a loss for all of us, because there would be no possibility of uh, there being a different kind of arguments, different kinds of interactions, different kind of outcomes on different issues. So that's the thing that worries me, right? That we are maybe leaving a place where the paradoxical mix of politics and law, even though it was had tensions within it, persisted and together served some positive goals. And beyond the court, even, losing the possibility of meaningfully engaging with people uh, with whom we profoundly disagree. And if we can't do that, I don't know how we can have life in community in a society like ours, which is incredibly diverse, heterogeneous, and dynamic. We have to find some way where we can live with disagreement uh, rather than uh, proceed on the presumption that there can only be my way or the highway. Keith Bybee, Professor of Law, Vice Dean at Syracuse University College of Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.